This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. There had never been a time like it, and there would never be a time like it again. Sure, America didn't officially have royalty, but it did have them unofficially. The unprecedented election of a Catholic in America as president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, a man from the new-moneyed class. Well, his daddy had made his money as a bootlegger, bringing illegal booze into America. There was big money in that. And with lots of money comes respectability. Jack Kennedy represented the new college-educated elite class of people, smarter than the stupid blue-collar working man. Now there could be a meritocracy. Let the elite smart people run the country. His wife was a huge asset not to be underrated. Jackie Kennedy brought the old money class with her and respectability for the Kennedy clan. So the Kennedys brought together two branches of upper-crust America, two mighty rivers that merged and became an irresistible force that was sweeping us ever faster onwards towards the new woke that is threatening to take over today's world. I grew up in the 60s. I grew up when the magic of the Kennedys in the White House was exciting the baby boomers, the young president, a beautiful wife, reshaping the world, conquering space, The Cuban Missile Crisis, desegregating the schools, the Vietnam War, a protest by the young led by the left against American imperialism and in favour of Stalinist oppression of the people of South Vietnam. Only I wasn't politically mature enough to see that. Solzhenitsyn saw it with crystal clarity when he spoke at the graduation ceremony at Harvard on 8 June 1978. He had lived under the monstrous type of regime that America had just allowed to take over South America. The changes that Jack Kennedy was ushering in were all good changes, all progressive changes that any right-thinking person would welcome. But Batya Unger Sargon, in her book, Bad News, gives us a different perspective. She reminds us that there is always at least another point of view, even though that's not what we're being told today. Even if the changes were something that were needed, maybe we should have paid more attention to how it looked to other people that were being affected by those changes. Maybe we should have tried harder to accommodate the needs of these 
other people too. The educated, enlightened elite supported desegregated busing. They supported affirmative action. The backward, uncool, white, working-class families weren't so impressed. They were the people that were going to be the most affected by these changes. The educated elite sent their children to private schools. They weren't affected by those issues. They just foisted their ideas on everyone else, and those blue-collar workers would just have to live with the consequences. The Vietnam War had seen mass protests, but the main activists driving opposition to the war weren't coming from the average white families. These protesters were part of the new educational elites. These educated elite looked down on the working-class people who supported the war. It was, after all, going to be the working class who were going to be drafted and sent overseas to fight in that war, not the intellectual elites. So the educated elites looked down on those unsophisticated working class people, the blue-collar workers. They looked down on the police who had to go out and confront the protests of these educated elite. The educated elite looked down on pretty well everyone. Author Charles Peters, in his book We Do Our Part, said... The response of the hard hats and the police fed a growing division between student and worker that was part of the growing class separation in a country that liked to think of itself as classless. New things started to become important in the lives of these educated elite who wanted to copy the lifestyle they saw the Kennedy clan living. Things like travel, food, wine and art. Knowing and appreciating these gave them greater distance from the working class people who didn't. Those things let them stand apart. The new type of journalists were fed on this new elitism, and they wanted to come inside and be part of it. The old journalists stood outside and criticised the wealthy elites. Kennedy had worked on a paper called the Harvard Crimson at Harvard University. During his run at the presidency, Jack treated his fellow Ivy League journalists as kindred spirits. He flattered them into being loyal to him. Timothy Krauss, in his book On the Bus, about Kennedy's presidential campaign touring the country on the buses with the press, was familiarly called Jack by the journalists. They abandoned all pretense of meeting the standards set down for them by Joseph Pulitzer, of being impartial. They came on board his campaign with him. They even sang anti-Nixon songs with Kennedy staffers at hotel bars. Krauss goes on to tell us, His Harvard-trained advisers spoke in an academic, sophisticated idiom that excluded many of the older reporters, but appealed to the new generation. Television made changes to reporting essential too. Reporting that just told you what had happened wasn't needed anymore. You could sit in front of your television set and see what was happening without needing someone to tell you what you were watching. This wasn't radio. Newspaper owners felt that now they had to add to the story they were telling their readers or viewers. What was that something? Expert comment, analysis. The old-fashioned reporters and editors were slowly being pushed to the door, and soon they'd be pushed through the door and onto the street. Radio and TV started to focus on what was happening across the nation. What was happening in your town wasn't so important anymore. Well, even if it was to you... The nationalisation of the media meant that ownership of the media was concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Those hands were mostly on the more sophisticated East and West Coasts, not Middle America. What mattered in New York and Washington was now what mattered. Your values, your Christianity, your sense of right and wrong. 
that America was the greatest country on earth. Well, that wasn't what the journalists in New York, Los Angeles and Washington thought. A 2007 survey of 1,000 American journalists found that compared to the general public, more than twice as many journalists identified as not religious 44% of journalists said they didn't practice religion, while just 20% of Americans surveyed in the U.S. Census that year said the same. Even among those journalists who did identify as religious, the percentage who said religion is very important to them, 36%, was significantly lower than it was for Americans overall at 61%. The survey found that the less local and more national the media outlet, the less religious its masthead was likely to be. When the national media outlets were dwarfed by the number of local television and radio stations, newspapers and magazines, you could count on a very large proportion of journalists living in smaller American cities, some of them attending church and synagogue alongside their readers, viewers and listeners. With the collapse of the local newspaper industry because of the all-powerful national media, American journalism was not just nationalised but also focused in just three or four cities, and the four cities were cities that had the most extreme left-wing ideologies. It goes further than that. Politico reported on how dangerous this concentration is, because it's worse than you think. Politico describes itself as the global authority on intersection of politics, policy and power. In 2017, Politico, from its data analysis, said... If you're a working journalist, odds are just that you work in a pro-Clinton county. Odds are that you reside in one of the nation's most pro-Clinton counties. Schaefer and Doherty cross-referenced labor statistics against voting patterns and U.S. Census data to uncover an almost completely localized media. 73% of all Internet publishing jobs are in the Boston, New York, Washington, Richmond corridor or a West Coast crescent running from Seattle to San Diego and on to Phoenix. Just 22% goes to the rest of the country. Schaefer and Doherty wrote, Almost all the real growth of internet publishing is happening outside the heartland in just a few urban counties, all places that voted for Clinton. So when conservatives use media as synonymous with liberal, they're not far off the mark. The contrast with their fellow Americans is staggering. 57% of Americans have never lived outside their home states. The typical American lives 18 miles from their mother, the New York Times reported. This great economic, national, religious and political focusing of what people believed used to be impossible because the industry is based on local ads and local news. You couldn't write the news of Boise, Idaho from New York City nor could you get a Boise project manager to care about the local news happening in San Francisco. But the local newspaper industry has collapsed over the past decade. U.S. newsrooms have laid off half their employees since 2008. 22,000 journalism jobs disappeared between 2006 and 2012. That's one-third of the total workforce. With many people choosing to get their news from the internet, ad sales plummeted and could no longer sustain newsrooms. In 2005, the total ad revenue for print journalism came to $50 billion, which sustained 55,000 reporters and editors. By 2016, that revenue had fallen to $20 billion, leaving just 33,000 jobs. Today, that number is even smaller. The price we have to pay is that now a comparative handful of woke 
left-wing, university-indoctrinated journalists shove their opinions down our throats as if their point of view was the only one. Anyway, then something happened that gave this whole movement a huge shove that made newspaper reporters sexy. You probably really wouldn't want to be a spy. That can end very badly for you. But being a journalist suddenly became glamorous and sexy when Richard Nixon was involved in the break-in of the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington. The break-in happened on 17 June 1972. The story of what happened was broken by two journalists, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post. They revealed that the break-in was part of a massive political campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of the Nixon re-election committee. Like the Hunter Biden laptop from hell story, that story didn't make any difference to the results of the presidential election. Nixon won by one of the biggest landslides in American political history, but the persistent following up on the story by Woodward and Bernstein and the publication of their tell-all book, All of the President's Men, in 1974, eventually led to the resignation of Nixon as president on August 1974. Nixon's famous I am not a crook speech in November 1973 didn't save him. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice, and I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. One of Nixon's men who ended up being charged and convicted for his involvement in the Watergate scandal was Charles Colson. His experience in the Watergate scandal led him to becoming a Christian. Here's why, he said, he underwent that conversion. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. As I said, following on from the Watergate scandal, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward published their book, All the President's Men. That was made into a movie of the same name, starring two of the biggest name stars in Hollywood at the time, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward and Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein. This whole Watergate scandal, the news coverage, the book, the movie, made journalism very sexy. The David and Goliath story of two journalists bringing down the most powerful man in the United States, the president. We've seen the same sort of thing with other industries, activities, with increases in the popularity of fields like archaeology, thanks to Indiana Jones, and increased popularity in forensic science courses because of the CSI TV series. Inspired by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, journalism started to attract more ambitious and better educated people who might have otherwise gone into some other field like the money markets, law, etc. This new sexy put the final nail in the coffins of the older style blue-collar journalists. In the 1930s, just three in ten journalists had been to college. By 1960, it was two-thirds of journalists who had a college degree. By 1983, 75% of journalists had college degrees. By 1992, it was 82%. By 2002, it was 89%. By 2015, it was 92% of journalists who had college degrees. Today, across the whole of the United States, only one-third of Americans have a college degree. 
46% of adults have never attended a day of college. A scientific study of journalism in America in 1980 found that journalists were one of the best educated groups in America. 93% of journalists surveyed had college degrees and a majority of those had higher degrees, a master or a PhD. Only one in five of that new breed of journalists reported having a father with a low-status job. Until recently, that would have been the sort of family that almost all of the journalists had. The salaries of journalists in 1986 put the leading journalists into the upper-middle-class earnings, with people at the top of the media having the same incomes as celebrities. Journalists were now starting to separate from the views that the ordinary people held. Gone were the days that I talked about in one of my earlier programs in this series when I said that journalists were blue-collar workers. They lived in the same areas as working-class people. They knew their pain, and they took on the issues that concerned the working class and the poor. But now, that was radically changing. The scientists who had done the paper on the changing face of journalism in the 1980s reported that the views of journalists were now very different to the ordinary people in America. Some examples... 91% of journalists were pro-choice compared to 31% of the public. 80% supported affirmative action for black Americans compared to 57% of the public. Only 26% of journalists said they'd voted for Ronald Reagan as president. 86% said they seldom or never went to religious services. The staff of the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times were more secular and had progressive read left-wing views than journalists from other newspapers. With each new generation of journalists, they were becoming more and more left-leaning in their views. They were also becoming increasingly similar in their backgrounds. The new wave of journalists came from families with very high incomes and were significantly less religious. To a great degree, the new up-and-coming journalists were all clones, sophisticated backgrounds, above-average wealthy families, high incomes and social status. The scientists reported yesteryear's ragtag muckrakers who tirelessly championed the little guy against powerful insiders have become insiders themselves. Newsmen had long cherished the vantage point of the outsiders who keep the insiders straight. But now the leading journalists are courted by politicians, studied by scholars and known to millions through their bylines and televised images. To counteract the journalists being clones of each other and telling the same stories from the same perspectives, which they clearly felt was very important, the researchers recommended a heterogeneous newsroom where competing views of all stripes lessen the chance that any one perspective will be taken for granted. But since their report, things have gotten far, far worse. In 1984, 26% of journalists had voted for the conservative Republican Ronald Reagan as president. But by 2014, just 7% of journalists identified as Republicans. By 2015, 96% of journalists made donations to Hillary Clinton's Democratic Party run for president. How impartial was their news reporting going to be? University research in 2018 of business journalists from the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg News, Forbes, New York Times, Reuters and the Washington Post found that just 4% of them had conservative views. Journalism has become more elite because anyone coming from an average background is unlikely today to be able to afford to get a job in that industry. 
you pay a matzah for tuition fees for a university degree. While you're doing your degree, you need to get good, high-profile internships, holiday work in the industry. The best of the internships don't pay you. That means you can't work during your term holidays, like most people putting themselves through colleges had to do. The only people who were going to get through one of these American degrees with unpaid internships during the holiday and then get a low-paid job at the beginning of their career are people who have wealthy parents who can pay their way until they become self-sufficient in maybe five or ten years' time. On top of that, today, if you're going to be a successful journalist, you have to go to the best colleges to have the right contacts and to become part of the right networks, which is something that you will only realistically get by coming from a wealthy family, which already has those connections to give you. Charles Peters is the editor of the Washington Monthly, an interesting publication. Its website tells us about the paper. The Washington Monthly was founded in 1969 on the notion that a handful of plucky young writers and editors armed with an honest desire to make government work and a willingness to ask uncomfortable questions could tell the story of what really matters in Washington better than a roomful of Beltway insiders at a Georgetown dinner party. We're not a subsidiary of some giant media company or a mouthpiece for ideologues. We're an independent voice, listened to by insiders and willing to take on sacred cows, liberal and conservative. Instead of cynically tearing down institutions and programs, we offer innovative solutions. How to get the best people to work for the government, and how to get the best government for the people. How to get teachers who can teach, and social workers who can make welfare reform work. We believe in the great American traditions of civic responsibility, caring for the down and out, and giving the average person a break. So what Charles Peters has to say is probably worth listening to, and he says this, It is a major problem that journalists have come to identify with the rich or upper middle class, rather than with the poor. It has a tremendous effect on what they're interested in reporting. Because they are identifying up, their first thought is how the situation would look from the top, rather than how it would look from the bottom. Batya Unger Sardon, in her book Bad News, says of this comment, In other words, there's a simple reason why Americans feel so alienated from the media and journalists who are supposed to be writing the first draft of American history. The reason is because they are alienated from them. Where this leads to, though, might still surprise you. Thanks for listening in to this program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, The Good Shepherd, at Collins Avenue, Edgehill, some Sunday. If you liked this program, you should really listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone.